We really need new phones. T-Mobile will cover the cost of four amazing new iPhone 15s, and each line is only $25 a month. New iPhone 15s? It's better over here. Only at T-Mobile get four iPhone 15s on us and four lines for $25 per line per month with eligible trade-in when you switch. Minimum of four lines for $25 per line per month with auto pay discount using debit or bank account. $5 more per line without auto pay, plus taxes and fees. Phone fee 24 monthly bill credits for all well qualified customers. Contact us before canceling account to continue bill credits or credit stop and balance on required finance agreement due. $35 per line connection charge applies. Ctmobile.com. Hey, Rob Bradford here. I have set out on a mission with my good friend at FanDuel to prove what I have known for some time. Baseball isn't boring. Now I have a daily podcast to prove it with some of the most notable people in the baseball world screaming baseball isn't boring from the mountaintops or at least agreeing to come on our show. Players, managers, GMs, and yes, even the commissioner of baseball, Rob Manfred. It has been a constant wave of baseball's most powerful voices. So join the revolution. Subscribe and soak in baseball isn't boring. Listen on your Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts. You'll be glad you did. You're listening to KCBS In-Depth. We came very close to a catastrophic breakdown of our democratic accountability. The people, places, and issues the Bay Area is talking about. Right now, we're kind of stuck in this cycle where every summer we're hearing another story about a big fire and a town burning down. It's still extremely difficult to hold government agencies accountable for abuses that take place in the name of national security. This is KCBS In-Depth. Just as the masks come off, a new COVID variant has emerged on the world stage, stoking fears of yet another surge. Of course, we've seen this story play out before, but this time, COVID fatigue may be at an all-time high, and federal funding for COVID preparedness has just about run out. Welcome to KCBS In-Depth. I'm Keith Menconi, and today on the program, as the White House warns that key COVID programs will need to ramp down due to lack of funding, we're going to consider how that could hamper our response if cases begin to tick back up once again. Then in the second half, we look at the personal side of preparedness and discuss the latest vaccine science, including who might need another booster. There's going to be four factors that determine how frequently we need boosters. Your age, your comorbidities, new variants, and how high the virus is circulating. First up though, how prepared are we if another COVID wave hits? To help us work through that question, we're gonna welcome on now someone who thinks a lot about pandemic preparedness. That would be Dr. Amish Adalja, senior scholar at the Johns Hopkins Center for Health Security, also an infectious disease specialist. Dr. Amish Adalja, welcome back to KCBS In Depth. Thanks for having me. So it would seem that Congress is losing its appetite for COVID spending. Uh, We got a sense of where priorities lie earlier this month when it declined to pass billions of dollars in additional COVID spending requested by the White House. Since then, uh, the Biden administration has been warning that federal COVID funds are now at risk of running out. uh, And this is calling into question everything from free testing programs to the government's vaccine distribution to the availability of COVID treatments. Uh, Dr. Adalja, help us understand what it could mean if we don't find a way to pass more money here. What you have to kind of contextualize is the fact that we're still in a public health emergency, even as cases have fallen, even as uh, hospitals are not in crisis, there are many measures that are in place that require government funding. So for example, one of the reasons why we're much better able to deal with COVID-19 is because we have oral antivirals, because we have monoclonal antibodies, we have rapid tests. 
all of these are available only under emergency use authorization, which means that there's not really a commercial market for them. The government is the primary buyer and the primary distributor. If they don't have funds to buy antivirals or to buy monoclonal antibodies, and there's no commercial market for them because they're only available under emergency use authorization, it will really make it difficult to actually use these life-saving drugs to be able to keep COVID-19 tame, to keep it out of the hospital. So that's one thing that I think people don't quite understand is that so much of what we've done is dependent on these great products that are not commercially available. And we really can't be in this situation where you're trying to scramble too late to get funds for medications that people might need now. Right. Well, and of course, there is this sense, as you alluded to, that we are past the worst of this pandemic. Obviously, COVID fatigue is a phrase that we learned early on in the pandemic, but it's certainly picked up in strength over the past few weeks, you know, after so many surges that we have gone through at at this point. Um I mean, is it is it really uh, possible to expect that we would maintain the same level of preparedness even now, two years into this thing? Obviously, the, the preparedness has to change based on the, the new situation on the ground. And eventually, COVID-19 will be managed like many other respiratory viruses with less government involvement and more of the commercial market and more of the healthcare industry dealing with it, the way they deal with influenza or RSV. But that's not the case now. But a larger point is, is that Pandemic preparedness is something that's been neglected for decade after decade, despite so many reports that my colleagues and I have written that probably gather desks, dust in desk drawers right now. This is not something that politicians have ever prioritized that much. We often talk about there being a cycle of panic and neglect, and that's exactly what many of us think is happening now, that as COVID-19 seems to be receding from the headlines, uh, the political priorities have shifted, and it's something that will not lead to a sustainable approach to pandemic preparedness. Because we have to think also beyond COVID-19. This isn't the only pandemic that we are going to face. And there are bigger threats out there than COVID-19. And what we need to do to avoid all of the bad consequences that happen with with COVID-19 is to have a robust, sustainably funded system to think about pandemic preparedness, to make investments in medical countermeasures, to make sure that we are not flat-footed, make sure that we have a lot of situational awareness of what's going on in the world of infectious disease. And to do that, you can't have something that is subject to the vicissitudes in Washington, where when a priority changes, uh, everybody forgets what just happened. We have to think about communicable disease control, public health infrastructure, the way we think about national security, because if we don't, this same thing could happen again with another virus or even with COVID-19 and another variant. Yeah, and just to maybe flesh out some of the arguments that are coming out of uh, D.C. on this point right now, uh, the Republican lawmakers who opposed the spending boost, uh, they said that they want to see a fuller accounting of how the federal government has spent the COVID money that's already been appropriated. What do you make of that fiscal responsibility point? Obviously, there was probably a point in the pandemic where... You, you, it really didn't make sense to fully scrutinize every single dollar that was going out. We, we, we were in such a heightened emergency that it was just more important, important to get the money out than to uh, perhaps go through all the normal vetting procedures that we would uh, in a non-emergency. Have we reached a point now where it makes sense to have a higher level of scrutiny for each one of those dollars that goes out? I, I'm in agreement with the fact that there needs to be more transparency in the funding. The funding is, is needed, but I also think that you know, just from experience of, of dealing with government funding programs, that there is often waste and 
things don't get to the get to the actual destination that they were meant to get to, that there is worries about fraud, all of that, those are legitimate concerns. And I think that the the federal government, the, the Biden administration and, and the Trump administrations ne- needed to be very clear on where that money was going, what it was being used for, if they were taking money from one program and putting it into another non-COVID related program, which we heard they they may have done, for example, at the at the southern border, uh, moving money from COVID, COVID funding to, to house some of those children there because they didn't want separate funding. All of that needs to be answered. But I think that's a separate issue from the fact that there is a need for COVID-19 funding for medical countermeasures today. I think that these things need to be taken on, on two tracks. One is, how do we make sure people have tests, monoclonal antibodies, vaccines, antivirals, funding for hospital preparedness? All of that needs to be thought of as an urgent need. And at the same time, there can be a separate way of dealing with whatever fraud might have happened during the Trump and Biden administration, whatever lack of transparency might have happened, whatever accounting didn't occur. That Those, I think, need to be separated. Because what we can't have is pandemic preparedness become a political issue where it's handled the way so many issues are today, where the Democrats are trying to score points on the Republicans and the Republicans are trying to score points on the Democrats. That's not conducive to having any kind of resiliency to infectious disease threats. And I think this is often the frustration many of us in the infectious disease field is that feel is that these politicians get involved in this issue and then it becomes so much more convoluted, so much, so much harder to deal with when politicians are making these decisions and thinking about this, the way they think about everything else and the way they ruin everything else. All right, uh, just going to reintroduce you real quick. Speaking once again to Dr. Amos Adalja, senior scholar at the Johns Hopkins Center for Health Security. This is KCBS In-Depth. And I wonder if you could paint us a picture of what it will look like if we do indeed see a new surge of COVID cases in the U.S. Obviously, we're all monitoring that uh, this new variant um, that has become more prevalent in the U.S. and is causing a surge in Europe and Asia at this point. Lots of folks warning that uh, Europe has been an early warning sign of where the U.S. is likely to go. So if we are in a position a few weeks or a month from now where we're once again seeing cases tick back up and we haven't seen that funding return and we also haven't seen a return to the you know sorts of resolve on the part of individual uh, residents to take those COVID precautions, what kind of a position does that leave us in? How how would that be different from the surges that we've seen before? Well, I, I think there's a couple of things that that have to be explained first. So I think that the BA2 variant, yes, cases are going to go up. Whether they cause a surge or not, I think is not really quite known because we have a lot of immunity in the population from vaccines, from the Omicron wave, which was much the, the BA1 Omicron wave, which was much bigger in the United States than in Europe. And what's happening in Europe also has to do with the fact that they dramatically change behavior very quickly. And in the United States, we didn't really dramatically change behavior because most states did not have full mitigation the way Europe did. So it's unclear to me how much you can extrapolate what's going on in Europe to the United States. But yes, we will see BA2 cases go up. Um, Cases were not going to go down forever. Uh, I I don't think that we're going to see our hospitals in crisis with BA2 because of all of what I had said before, the the levels of population immunity. However, in order to be able to minimize any impact BA2 has, we need to have access to rapid tests, to drugs like Paxlovid, to monoclonal antibodies. And as I mentioned earlier, these don't have a commercial market yet. The federal government hasn't turned those, those products over to 
pharmaceutical companies to be able to distribute and market the way they do other drugs. So that would cause a constraint on those individuals who are high risk that get BA2, uh, and they wouldn't have the ability to take advantage of all the great tools science has has given us. And there's also a concern that part of that funding has to do with care for uninsured individuals, that the hospitals may, may have difficulties with taking care of patients, even if there's not a lot of them, just taking care of those that are uninsured, that there may be issues there as well. So there's a lot of things that have to happen in order for us to be able to absorb COVID cases without major disruption. And I think part of this has to be also us thinking about how we transition to treating COVID-19 like other respiratory infections and allowing the, the kind of the, the way we do with influenza, with the commercial market being involved. And all of that needs to be discussed. But in the interim, you can't hold up funding. It, I think it's, it's really short-sighted to try and hold up funding now because if you are not proactive, you're going to end up in a mess. Even if it's not as bad of a mess as the original Omicron, it's still not optimal, especially because it could be preventable. Yeah. Well, and I, I hear the frustration in your voice. And I, I just wonder, you know, if, if there was any national experience that could have taught us this lesson that this funding is important and it needs to be sustained, you would think that it would be a pandemic that has lasted for two years and is still running and has claimed close at this point to a million American lives. Uh, what if, if we haven't still learned this lesson, what, where do we go from here? I mean, what, where, where does this debate need to go to get more traction? I think the individual voters need to start holding their elected officials accountable for this. Because when you look at COVID-19 and how bad it was in the United States, it can only be described as a failure of government, a failure of the federal governments, a failure of the state governments, a failure of county governments, municipal governments, school boards, all the way down. And I think we really need to take this window of opportunity to talk to when we're at town halls or when people are running for re-election, asking them, what is your pandemic preparedness plan? Well, how do you think about the health department and the public health infrastructure that the health department does or doesn't have? They need to be held accountable for this because politicians often only care about being in power. And if you tell them that their ability to stay in power is contingent upon them being adept at pandemic preparedness, they'll take an interest in it because uh, that's just how they operate. And I think that's what has to happen is they have to be held accountable by the voters. Uh, this has to be something that becomes a legislative priority, something that elected officials are, are prepared to talk about and something that candidates have to, to roll out as, as they roll out plans on other issues that they have. This is something we have to actually demand because we, we can't afford and, and we shouldn't have these preventable deaths occurring because there's kind of ineptitude and lack of foresight amongst our political leaders, especially when the case has been made over and over again and COVID-19 has really driven it home. Yeah, yeah. And somehow it is easy to lose sight of those stakes. So uh, we do thank you for that reminder. We have been speaking once again to Dr. Amish Adalja, Senior Scholar at the Johns Hopkins Center for Health Security. Dr. Amish Adalja, thanks so much. Thanks for having me. We really need new phones. T-Mobile will cover the cost of four amazing new iPhone 15s. And each line is only $25 a month. New iPhone 15s? It's better over here. Only at T-Mobile get four iPhone 15s on us and four lines for $25 per line per month with eligible trade-in when you switch. Minimum of four lines for $25 per line per month with auto-pay discount using debit or bank account. $5 more per line without auto-pay, plus taxes and fees. Phone fee at 24 monthly bill credits for well-qualified customers. Contact us before canceling accounts to continue bill credits or credit stop and balance on required finance agreement due. $35 per line connection charge applies. See T-Mobile.com. 
baseball is in full swing. NBA playoffs are heating up, and your NFL team is gearing up for training camp. Listen to the latest on the teams you love here on the Odyssey app. The biggest sports radio stations in the country providing unrivaled local coverage of their teams all in one place. Exclusive interviews with players, coaches, and team executives streaming live and always available on demand. Stay in the know with your favorite teams right here on the Odyssey app. This is KCBS In-Depth, your weekly deep dive into the events and trends shaping life in the Bay Area and beyond. I'm Keith Manconi. Today, as we enjoy this lull in the pandemic, we're considering the possibility that it won't last forever and discussing the growing concern that we're not doing enough to prepare while we still have the chance. Up next, well, on the personal front, of course, a big part of preparedness is getting vaccinated. But just how many doses is enough to keep us safe? Is the usual recommendation of just two shots plus a booster doing the job, or will a fourth shot be needed as well? And if so, for whom? Well, these are questions that we are at least starting to get some answers to. So to lay out what we know so far, we're going to welcome onto the program now Dr. Monica Gandhi. She's an infectious disease physician at UC San Francisco who's written a recent op-ed piece uh, about this fourth dose question. Dr. Monica Gandhi, welcome back onto KCBS In-Depth. Good to have you. Thank you. So I think the best place to start is probably talking about actually the three-dose regimen that uh, many of us have taken at this point and what we're learning about its effectiveness, because by now, many of the people who have gotten their booster shot have had it for many months now, some people more than six months. So are we getting a clearer picture of how the three doses are working out over time? Yes, I think we are. So I think I would refer us to two studies. Um, One is that on February 18th, the CDC broke down what was the effectiveness of third shot versus two shots um, against what our latest surge, which was the Omicron surge. And specifically what that study showed us is that for those over 65, the third shot was imperative. It really did protect at a much higher level than two shots, basically gave a 65 times higher rate of, um, you know, doing well as compared to being unvaccinated. And uh, it would have been lower around 44 times if you were, um, if you had just had two shots. So those over 65 benefited the most. Mm. Those over 50 benefited somewhat. And actually there was an Israeli study that showed that those between 18 and 29 did not benefit at all. This was an age stratified look at boosters versus not. And 18 to 29, two shots, three shots, the rate of death was zero uh, from COVID-19. So, so that does mm-hmm. begin to speak to what we're going to talk about later, which is being young is really helpful. And then And it also just speaks to, you know, you're already getting such a boost from the original two shot. There's not much further you can go. Exactly right. And 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 so it really and because of this really speaks to what's happening in Hong Kong right now, where a lot of the population who's older is not boosted. We really do need boosters and the third shot for older people. But it was not as much benefit for uh, for younger. Yeah. Yeah. So that does seem to be the general pattern that we're seeing. But the the pattern is also that we're seeing waning protection over time. Uh, How steep is that drop off and how much are the boosters helping? Well, the important thing when we use the phrase waning immunity is to understand what which arm of the immune system we're talking about, because Hmm. what protects us from severe disease is essentially having T-cell immunity to the virus. And T-cell immunity 
and also what's called B cell immunity. So these are two uh, forms of cells that we get from the virus. They're there, they last a really long time and they kick in if they see the virus again and they protect you against severe disease. And then T cells actually um, help B cells make antibodies and eventually even your mild disease, if you get it, will be, um, will be fought. So cellular immunity is not actually waning. What's waning is your antibodies. And what are antibodies? They're pieces of protein um, that look like Pac-Man kind of, they, they, and, and they basically are the first arm of the immune system, but antibodies will come down with time. This is completely normal. Your immune system cannot keep all those antibodies in your bloodstream and in your nose that they've seen from every infection, every vaccine they've seen, they come down with time. A booster raises those antibodies for about four months and then they'll go right back down. And so waning immunity is really referring to antibodies. And what antibodies do in the majority of individuals is protect us from mild infection. So these reinfections that we saw with Omicron were generally mild. And then there was a group of individuals who are more at risk for severe breakthroughs. And why are they at risk for severe breakthroughs? Because their antibodies really matter. If you're older, you can't take those couple of days, three, four days and wait for your B cells to make antibodies. You need your antibodies nice and high and plump and ready to eat <laughs> if you're at risk for severe disease. Yeah. And it's those individuals who are going to need more frequent boosters, those who are at risk for severe disease. Yeah. Just going to reintroduce you real quick. We're speaking right now to Dr. Monica Gandhi, infectious disease physician at UC San Francisco, talking about whether or not many of us will need a fourth uh, dose of the vaccine. And uh, a lot of what you have to say here is, of course, encouraging the fact that many parts of our immune system are able to uh, remember the lessons that they learned from the vaccine over prolonged periods of time. Uh, and essentially what we are losing is that first line of defense over time. Uh, and uh, that helps explain why breakthrough uh, infections do occur, especially when you're far out from uh, your first or your second or third dose of the vaccine. But they do tend to be milder because eventually those uh, those parts of your immune system with a longer memory, eventually they start to kick in and ramping up. Yes. Um, so that's all encouraging. But uh, Perfect summary, by the way. That was great. <laughs> I was taking notes, doing, 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 doing my hostly job right here. Um, but when we talk about the fourth dose, what are we learning there? Because obviously very few people in the U.S. at this point have had a fourth dose. Uh, I think that there is a recommendation for some people who are immune compromised. Uh, but for the general public, for most people, that isn't on the table. Uh, Israel is a place where that uh, has been made available. What are we learning from their experience? Yes. So there was a really important study, I think, that was published in the New England Journal last week that asked this very question that you just said from Israel. It was a group of healthcare workers, and it said, what was the benefit of a fourth dose in these healthcare workers? Because the um, Israel had approved the fourth shot for healthcare workers. So this was a population, this is a key point, that was under 65 years of age. And what that observational study showed us is that a fourth shot basically did nothing. It did not improve vaccine effectiveness above the third shot. You were just as susceptible to getting a mild reinfection, but not severe um, with, uh, with, with giving that four shot over a third. And the second, and this was an important part of the study, is that they showed your viral load, if you did get a breakthrough infection, was not lower with a four shot. Didn't even look like you were less infectious with getting a four shot. 
that study is important because what that study means to us is it kind of speaks to everything we've been saying. You're, if you're younger, and this in this in this case they were younger than 65 because that's a typical retirement age um, for healthcare workers. If you were younger, the fourth shot really didn't help and didn't make a difference. And the reason that's important is then now we have to focus on who needs it. And uh, let's get into uh, next who might need it. Uh, real quick, though, let's uh, actually go over the timeline that is ahead of us because this is very soon not going to be an abstract conversation. Uh, we have Moderna and Pfizer. They are applying for their shots, their fourth shots, to be uh, authorized. Uh, in the case of Moderna, they're applying for a shot for all adults. In the case of Pfizer, uh, they want shots for those 65 and older. Uh, meantime, Politico reported in recent days that the Biden administration could authorize a second COVID booster for, uh, shot for older Americans within just weeks. So this is a decision that folks are uh, likely going to need to make pretty soon. In in your view, what is the data telling us about who might benefit from a fourth shot? Yes. So essentially, I think the data clearly tells us that younger people don't need it. Okay. So then, mm. but who needs it? Who need who needs a fourth shot? Are those who are at risk for severe disease? So what's that age cutoff? What's the appropriate age cutoff? Well, the UK has decided everyone seventy five and older should get a fourth shot. Germany decided today. Everyone 70 and older should get a four shot. And Sweden decided a month ago, everyone 70 or older should get a four shot. So you can see this trend that it's likely to be older populations. I don't know what the cutoff's going to be, 65, 70, 75. Since Pfizer has applied, they have been very specific. They said they want it approved for everyone over 65. Moderna said, I want it approved for 18 and older. But then they actually just said recently, um, even though we applied for approval or authorization for 18 and above, that didn't mean we thought everyone in 18 and above should get it. This is what the CEO said. Um, he said, you know, um, the FDA should decide who needs it. So mm. putting that, all that together, I think what will happen on April 6th, which is when the FDA reviews these two EU applications from Moderna and Pfizer, and then they will go to the CDC, is it's likely the fourth shot will be approved for older individuals. And it would have maybe been 70 or 75 if Pfizer hadn't used this phrase of 65. And I kind of, if I looked at a crystal ball, I think it's going to be for 65 and older. Okay. Okay. So all fitting this pattern that we've been talking about uh, throughout the conversation, that the biggest benefits uh, for uh, booster shots come from older uh, adults. Um, I, I guess the, the, the question then is, what does the long-term outlook in terms of potential future shots look like for America as a whole? Is it, is it looking like uh, the three-dose series that some Americans have gotten at this point is going to be durable and that series is, you know, we're essentially done? Or are we going to hit a point where we're going to need in the years ahead to get some kind of new booster, maybe something more tailored to, uh, to future variants, uh, to if this becomes a, a, a seasonal, recurring, uh, endemic sort of disease, maybe we get something every year like the flu shot? What does the future look like? Yeah, this is a great question. So one thing I'll say about what we know about the endurability of those two types of cells is we're not sure, but B cells look like they could last a long time. For example, mm. there were people in 1918 who 90 years later they found who had survived the influenza pandemic. This is a study in nature a year ago. And they actually took their cells 
and found that they still had B cells 90 years later to that original influenza vaccine that could be stimulated to produce antibodies against Incredible. the influenza pandemic. So B cells can last a long time. And then the other thing about T cells, the other arm, is those T cells, at least by some studies from La Jolla uh, Institute of Immunology, look like they have a very long half-life. Half-life means that they look like they're going to last a long time. So I'm really hopeful B cells and T cells will last a long time. So then who will need boosters? Every season, for example. Again, those who are more at risk for severe breakthroughs. It's very possible that if the virus is circulating at high levels next season, that the old, that older people will get yet another boost. Now, how do we know if the virus is gonna be circulating at a high rate next respiratory virus season? It will depend on if we get a new variant. And we will get new variants, unfortunately, because we can't eradicate this virus. Hopefully we'll have a break for a while after BA2, but we don't know. And what it, so that's why it remains to be seen. There's gonna be four factors that determine how frequently we need boosters. Your age, your comorbidities, new variants, and how high the virus is circulating. Interesting. So ultimately, this is going to be a moving target and something that we're going to have to give some continued thought to uh, in the months and, and funding. Years and funding. Yeah, very important theme for this show. Yes, absolutely. But for now, uh, we do thank you for sharing your insights on the vaccine questions that many of us will be facing in the weeks and months ahead. Uh, we have been hearing those insights once again from Dr. Monica Gandhi, an infectious disease physician at UC San Francisco. You can find her recent op-ed piece on this topic in the San Francisco Chronicle. Dr. Monica Gandhi, thanks so much. Thank you very much. And thank you all for listening. For KCBS and In Depth, I'm Keith Menconi. Stay safe, be well. We'll see you next week. You've been listening to KCBS In-Depth. Get every episode by subscribing on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, and other podcast platforms. Visit kcbsradio.com for more news and interviews. We are the Bay Area's news station, KCBS. We really need new phones. T-Mobile will cover the cost of four amazing new iPhone 15s, and each line is only $25 a month. New iPhone 15s? You spend only at T-Mobile get four iPhone 15s on us and four lines for $25 per line per month with eligible trade-in when you switch. Minimum of four lines for $25 per line per month without a pay discount using debit or bank account. $5 more per line without auto pay, plus taxes and fees. Phone fee at 24 monthly bill credits for all well qualified customers. Contact us before canceling account to continue bill credits or credit stop and balance on required finance agreement due. $35 per line connection charge applies. See T-Mobile.com. Hey, Rob Bradford here. I have set out on a mission with my good friends at FanDuel to prove what I have known for some time. Baseball isn't boring. Now I have a daily podcast to prove it with some of the most notable people in the baseball world screaming baseball isn't boring from the mountaintops or at least agreeing to come on our show. Players, managers, GMs, and yes, even the commissioner of baseball, Rob Manfred. It has been a constant wave of baseball's most powerful voices. So join the revolution. Subscribe and soak in baseball isn't boring. Listen on your Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcast. You'll be glad you did.